0: Well, good morning, New Life East. I am so glad to see all of you. Hello, hello. We meet again at last. Um, Why don't you go ahead and stand with me? Some of you are already standing, and so you're in a good place. We, um, from my understanding, is that we, uh, that you guys as a community uh, over here at East are confessing the Nicene Creed each week as you begin, uh, Um, As you open up to Revelation, I think that's just brilliant because Revelation, if you did not know, is an incredibly controversial and sophisticated and difficult to interpret book. And so what we do is we ground ourselves in what matters, the hills to die on, and then everything else we hold with open hands and humble hearts. And so, um, yeah, let's let's, uh, get on the hills to die on here (laughs) as we begin. Uh, Join me in confessing our faith together. Through him all things were made for us and for our salvation he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried With the Father and the Son, he is worshiped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, universal, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen and amen and amen. Jesus, We ask that you would transfix our gaze on you this morning. May we see all of our lives, this world, all of our relationships, and yes, even the book of Revelation through you, the great Lamb who was slain that sinners might live. We ask that um, as we dive into this wild and woolly passage that you would... um, You would speak gospel to us and through us into this city. Do it, we ask. Grant it. Come speak right now because your servants are listening. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You guys can be seated. Revelation 13 is where we are this morning. Uh, If there were, uh, go ahead and turn in your Bibles, load it up on your apps, your phones, your whatever. It doesn't matter how you get to it. It's the same crazy passage regardless of how you get there. If there were an Olympics um, in the Bible for most controversial passage in the Bible, uh, I don't know if it would get the gold. It might. Uh, It'd be competing, but it would be up there. Silver, bronze, something. It'd be up there. Uh, Revelation 13 is where we're going to be today. It's a doozy. So starting in verse 1. And I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads. Each of its heads were decorated with a royal crown. And on its head... Hang on just a second. <clears throat> Sorry. We're going to have to back up just a little bit. Did you notice what this verse started with? It started with the word and. And so anytime the word and is there in the Bible, we probably should know and what. So let's back up a couple of verses. The end of chapter 12, starting verse 17. That'll give us a running start. So the dragon was furious with the woman and he went off to make war on the rest of her children, on those who keep God's commandments that's her children, this woman's children, and hold firmly to the witness of Jesus. Then the dragon stood on the seashore and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. So that, that's the context for everything else that we are going to be covering today is a woman and a dragon and the, the dragon's mad so he's raising up beasts um, to get this woman's children those who are obedient to to jesus um we don't have time to recap all of where we are in revelation so we just remember that um, the 2nd we're in the second half of the book of Revelation right now. The first half of the book of Revelation was concerned with this. I made it. Isn't it cool? Um, it's a scroll writing on two sides. Uh, it's a scroll that uh, preoccupied most of our attention. Uh, it was uh, John wept over it in Revelation 5. And then it was a son of a gun to open up in chapters 6 and 7. It was really brutal uh, to get these seals off. And then finally in chapter 10, John... Ate the scroll. It's like God's purposes for the world, the meaning of human history, how God's going to save the world. Um, And everything else in the book of Revelation from chapter 11 onward, after the scroll is eaten, seems to be the contents of this scroll, God's purposes in the world. And so we heard, wasn't it great to have Dr. Witherington with us last week? He was, yeah, it was great to have him with us. He touched on chapter 12 last week. In chapter 12, John's language shifts, and he starts talking about a woman dazzling. And it seems like this woman, best scholars can tell, uh, represents the people of God. It's like daughter Zion, or virgin Israel, or Yahweh's bride. (laughs) You know, take your pick. They've all kind of been distilled down into like one single image that also has echoes and resonances with Maybe Eve, you know the, the woman whose child, whose offspring is going to crush the head of the serpent of the, the dragon kind of figure, and it also has resonances and echoes with um, Mary, the, the literal woman in history who who gave birth to uh, the messiah, and so uh, this woman, uh, the people of god um, john 's telling the story about. Jesus and his people, and the the woman gives birth to the son, and the dragon wants to eat the son, and he's safely whisked away into heaven, and so the dragon decides, okay, if I can't have the mom, then I'll, or or if I can't have the son, I'll devour the mom. If I can't have um, the the Messiah, I'll have the Messiah's mother, and so um, the dragon begins to, verse 17 of chapter 12, he goes off to wage war against the people of God. And so everything that we're about to read in this wild and wooly passage is the dragon waging war. He wages war with two beasts, is what he does. We're about to read a whole lot of crazy stuff, and so I'm just giving you the context in the book of Revelation for what we're reading. Fair? Good? All right. Chapter 13, buckle up. The dragon stood on the seashore. I saw a beast, a therion, an animal, <laughs> ravaging is awful, coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads. Each of its horns was decorated with a royal crown, and on its heads were blasphemous names. The beast I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. The dragon gave its power and thro- gave it his power, throne, and great authority. One of its heads appeared to have been slain and killed, but its deadly wound was healed. So, because it had, um, oh, I'm sorry, so the whole earth was amazed and followed the beast. They worshipped the dragon because it had given the beast its authority. They worshipped the beast and said, Who is like the beast and who can fight against it? The beast was given a mouth that spoke. Boastful and blasphemous things, and it was given authority to act for 42 months. That's the same three and a half years, the same symbolic period of time, half of seven, that we've seen again and again. It it opened its mouth to speak blasphemies against God. It blasphemed God's name and his dwelling place. That is those who dwell in heaven. It was also allowed to make war on the saints and to gain victory over them. It was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All who live on earth worshipped it. All whose names hadn't been written from the time the earth was made in the scroll of the life of the Lamb who was slain. Whoever has ears must listen. If any are to be taken captive, then to captivity they must go. If any are to be killed by the sword, then by the sword they will be killed. This calls for endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. Then I saw another beast, another theory on an animal blah, 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 coming up out of the earth this time. It had two horns like a lamb, but it was speaking like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast In its presence. It also makes the earth and those who live in it worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed it does great signs so that even so that it even makes fire come down from heaven to earth in the presence of the people it deceives those who live on earth by the signs that it was allowed to do in the presence of the beast it told those who live on earth to make an image of the beast who had been wounded by the sword and yet came to life again it was allowed to give breath to the beast's image so that the beast's image would even speak And cause anyone who didn't worship the beast's image to be put to death. It forces everyone, the great, the small, the rich and poor, the free and slaves, to have a mark put on their right hand or on their forehead. It will not allow anyone to make a purchase or sell anything unless the person has the mark with the beast's name or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who understands calculate the beast's number, for it is a human being's number. Its number is 666, and all God's people said, holy moly, what is this? What is happening? It's suddenly like we've got like a Godzilla movie, you know, bursting forth in the, in the book of Revelation, right, the, coming out of the sea, like waterfalls coming off like elbows and shoulders and, you know, and then we've got like the uh, Frozen 2, the earth giants, you know, this beasts coming out, of trees sticking out of like their armpits or their, you know, back or whatever, and then you've got Smog, the desolate, you know, flying around above this whole, what is happening? There's a whole lot we could say. We can't say everything, can't get into all the details, we only have time for a thumbnail sketch this morning. and uh, I have written up all the details. It's See the Strange is the book. It's not me trying to make a quick buck. It really was written for anybody that, like, wanted a, a Jesus-centered understanding of Revelation. Uh, so it's, it is available on Amazon. But um, I think to get at the big picture sketch of what this is getting at, this will uh, this cartoon will help us. Um, here we have um, two beasts ready to fight each other. They're strangely clothed in... Unusual garb. They have mysterious letters on their gloves, and even if you couldn't remember, I think all of us have an impression about what this is about. Even if you couldn't remember that GOP on that glove stands for Grand Old Party, is what that actually stands for. Um, And even if you don't quite remember or know how our political parties got symbolized in an elephant and a donkey, I bet $5 that most of the adults in the room um, have an immediate intuitive understanding about what this picture is about and it's not literal animals. Am I right? Right. (laughs) Yeah. But would this picture look bizarre to somebody who hadn't grown up in our country? Yeah. If would somebody from another culture or another century immediately intuitively understand what this picture is about? No. They wouldn't. If we put this picture in a time capsule, like print it off of the printer, bury it in the dirt, you know, and then say, if the Lord Terry said, somebody in the year 5,000 has lost all information about what 21st century America was like, and clink, dig up our time capsule, open it up, look at this picture. Are they likely to understand this picture? No, <laughs> it would require, like, we'd have to build a time machine, too. We'd have to go talk to them, and we'd have to, like, it, it takes some effort and some explanation for them to grasp every detail that we kind of, like, oh, yeah, I understand why there's stripes on the do- and stars, yeah, emblems, and, like, the letters, and even, like, the choice of the animals. I understand why this picture looks the way it does. It would take some explanation for them to say, I see. We're talking about political parties here. In the same way that it would take explanation for them to grasp what this is about, this text takes some explanation for us to grasp what it is about. Does, are we all tracking here? Um, what, so what we're going to do with most of our time this morning is give some background to this. And then as we're coming to the table, we'll make like just a couple of quick reflections on what this means for us. And so um, the background of Revelation 13 actually is found in the, the scroll of Daniel, the book of Daniel. Um, the image of beasts comes from Daniel 7. Beasts there... We're explicitly told, an angel tells us, thank you angel, that beasts represent human systems of power, kingdoms. So that, We're told, thank you, exactly what this image is. In Daniel 7, beasts are... Human power systems, they're like governments or economies or religions or societies that have gone off the rails, that are actually, do, like, they're not helping things, they're actually hurting things. Do you remember, pop quiz, do you remember in Genesis, at the very beginning of the Bible, what, an integral part of being human was that humanity was to, meant to rule over What? The (laughs) beasts, yes, over the animals, the the flyers and the swimmers and the the crawlers, yeah, the, the animals. And so Daniel's saying, what does it look like when humans set up systems that are ruling over each other in ways that are less than human, less than ideal, when governments are actually hurting people, when economies are actually designed in such a way to keep groups of people under their boot, when religious systems start oppressing people, when societies are built in such a way that they're actually making things worse rather than better, well, what's happened is like the entire Calling human calling of Genesis three has gotten turned upside down, so that we've now got beasts ruling over people, is what the image is in Daniel. Uh, the it's saying that the kingdoms are so out of whack they've they've emerged out of the waters of chaos, out of the sea that God called dry land out of in Genesis one, and that. The kingdoms that have emerged are actually beastly. They're, they're subhuman. They're inhumane is a way of saying it. But then the good news in Daniel 7 is actually finally, after we see beast after beast after beast, God's kingdom bursts onto the scene, just comes flying in. And it's a kingdom symbolized by not, not an animal. Do you know what it is? You do. It's Daniel 7. It's, it's a human being, comes on the clouds. It's one like a son of Adam. It's like a one like a son of man <laughs> emerges in Daniel. This That's Jesus' favorite title for himself, by the way. That's what he, he's claiming he's doing in his ministry, is, go, is coming in and casting out darkness, he, healing everything that's broken, correcting, confronting. And when this figure finally arrives in Daniel 7, we all breathe a sigh of relief. Daniel... And revelation both point to the same mysterious reality that when the forces of darkness pictured in the dragon in in Revelation 13 when they wage war when they attack when they attack God's people when they try to attack all of humanity the dragon is waging war with inhumane power systems That's what Revelation is pointing to right here. That's what this passage is saying at its heart. That's the way the enemy works is with inhumane power systems. And there are a whole lot of details. I can't address all of them. But maybe we could just get the big picture like this. The sea beast seems to represent systems of, like, domination. Violence, power, armies, spilling blood. And the land beast... is supporting that. It seems to represent powers of coercion, of bullying, of peer pressure. This verse 1, we've got a big monster. It's like that one (laughs) right there. I didn't picture that when I was, but it's like, just bursting out into the, into the uh, waters of chaos. If you're online, there's a giant monster behind the camera. Um, There, this monster is coming like out of, we're in a gem, it's the mascot, um, comes out of the waters of chaos, and it's like, it's some sort of kingdom. It's some sort of government that dominates, like its, its feet are like those feet, like a bear, it's like, trampling. It's like a leopard. It's fast. It's like a lion, verse 2. It's ravenous. And it rules. It's got a throne at the end of verse 2. It dominates, verses 7 and 8, it dominates the entire world. And this system, this kingdom, is so powerful that everybody does, do people stand up to it? No. <laughs> verse 4, they, it says that they all worship it. They all, literally, it just means they lay before it. They are, they, they say, who is like This beast, and then another monster, you know, the one with the trees and the armpits, um, is covered in dirt and bark, and blah, and comes out and is like supporting this other beast. If the first beast is like the sheriff it's like the, the, the main power, it's like a demonic Andy Griffith or something, then, uh, then this second beast is like a demonic Barney Fife, <laughs> you know? It's like that. he's got derivative authority. He's serving the authority of the first one. That's is the deputy. He's exercising, verse 12, he's exercising authority for the first beast. So he's securing the power of this beast by forcing people to worship it. Um, it's doing this, um, if the first beast conquered with an army, the second beast is conquering con- conquering. <laughs> conquering, with coercion. It, like, you know, like verse uh, 13 says, uh, deception, deceiving, manipulating, tricking, cajoling, pressuring. Like, um, verse 17 gets to the point where if you want to eat, if you want to buy or sell, you have to worship this first beast. And finally, should somebody refuse to pledge allegiance to this beastly system of power, then verse 15 says that the ultimate threat is laid against you, the threat of of death. (laughs) Um, We have some really good guesses. That's kind of like the big picture of what this kind of means generally. We have a... A really good guess as to what this, how this would have landed with John's first audience, with his first hearers, because we remember that the book of Revelation, we're not the first people to read it, right? Other people have read it through the centuries. John's first hearers would have recognized these beasts. They would have recognized the way the dragon was working in their century, would have recognized the dominating Roman Empire as the sea beast, would have seen the land beast, oh, That Roman cult, the imperial cult is what it was called, worshiping Roma and Rome and even Caesar, hailing him as divine. Uh, It was the fastest growing religion in the first century. They would have recognized, oh... This is the way that the dragon is getting, uh, getting, uh, getting at us. This, this first system, this Roman Empire, is dominating, crushing bear claws, the entire world, establishing peace. Pax Romana is what they called it. And they're ensuring that Pax Romana continues by continual violence. Is how they would sometimes crucify entire towns of people to make, sh- to make an example out of them so that no one would rise up against their power. And so the first century, they would have said, yep, I've seen a sea beast coming and conquering and devouring it that seems totally invincible. I know this beast. You stand up to this system, and you wind up hanging on one of its crosses. I know this system. No one can beat it, even though I remember, like, it seems like it, like, was about to die pretty recently. I remember, do you remember that, the year 69? Yeah, I remember that. It was, like, a few years back, Nero committed suicide. Like, it was rumored with a sword. Uh, He killed himself, and man, it felt like the whole system was just, like, collapsing for a whole year. We call it the year of the four emperors. Like, a total of four Caesars died during that year. Four corpses of Caesars were laying around, and it seemed like the entire system, verse 3, had a deadly wound. But then it recovered, just like sprang back to life when this fellow named Vespasia sat down on the throne. He was a general. He sat down on the throne, and he managed not to die. That's pretty good. Uh, And he brought the whole thing back from the brink. Um, The ancient Mediterranean world would have looked around the entire world said, "Who is like Rome? Who is like Rome? No one can fight against it." And John and his original hearers, they would have also recognized the land beast um, that, uh, in local. Neighbors, not no one across the sea. Just you could look around at the land around you. Local neighbors who had planted campaign signs in their front yard saying Caesar is Lord. The people who are like actual local officials who are helping serve as Rome's deputies locally, they would have recognized oh, a beast coming up from the from local soil from the, from the land. In fact, um, they they were shocked at how many people were worshiping Rome its goddess the emperors local stat local officials would set up statues of Rome this pre internet so you needed things to communicate like this is the mass communication of the day set up images of caesar around some it experts of the day would actually engineer some of these statues to talk to, to, like they would be able to like, you could talk, it, like, talk through it and it would move. Um, the, some marketplaces, they would set these uh, images up in front of the marketplace. Um, and if you wanted to get into that place, that place where you buy and sell, verse 17, you would have to take a pinch of incense on your way in, throw it on the burning coals, which represented your acquiescing to the system, your acknowledgement of the de- the divinity of the Roman Caesar. Refusing to do that was like, looked. it was like an, a, you, you did what? It's a bit like if you went to like a, a, a public sporting event and you didn't put your hand over your heart for the national anthem or, you know, it's like everyone would be like, well, wait a second. Are you, do you not support this, this whole system? Are you actually a threat to this whole system that we've got going on? And even if you got into the marketplace, even if somehow you got in there, to buy or to sell, you know what you would be using? You'd be using coins with the image of Caesar em- emblazoned on it. Insert- I should have put one on the, on the screen. I didn't. It doesn't matter whether the coin was Nero or Augustus or Vespasian or Domitian. Around the image of this head are blasphemous names. Verse 1, names like Son of God. A name like names like Savior, names like Kurios, Lord. That's what the campaign sign, Caesar is Lord. That's what everybody in the ancient world had bought into. It was the confession of the empire. Rome is ultimate. No one can fight it. And John was inviting his earliest hearers to recognize this whole system is a system from the dragon. It's a system that dominates with violence, that enforces itself through coercion and bullying, John was inviting them to recognize it and resist it as best you can. I know it's complicated. I know it's hard, but resist it. That's actually what he's doing with uh, the Bible's most famous number. Maybe the world's most famous number. I don't know. How how could you even measure that? But um, that's what he's doing with 666. It's actually in in Hebrew, he's doing something called uh, gematria. It's, um, you can go ahead and throw it up there if you want. It's Hebrew, um, in the ancient world, they didn't have numbers, Aramaic numbers like we do. And so everything was like Roman numerals. It was like uh, letters that had uh, numerical value. And so if you spell out uh, Nero, Caesar, Caesar Nero in Hebrew, and it would be read from right to left, which is why I did it that way. And uh, only consonants get written down. The vowels uh, piggyback on the consonants. That's why some of them are gone. O gets... Uh, tagged on to the, uh, to the Vav right there. Um, if you add up the values of how you write Caesar Nero in Hebrew, is anyone really quick at math? It doesn't matter if you are. Everybody knows what I'm getting at. It adds up to 666. Six, six. In essence, John is pointing to the, the fact that, like, you know that monster Nero, who died. That monster of a Caesar. This whole system is as monstrous as that monster Caesar who murdered multiple wives, who murdered his own mother for crying out loud, who used, I'll be discreet, who used still living Christians as torches in his garden parties. (laughs) This whole system is built on something that is anti-love, anti-lamb, Jesus. To which we say, well, why not just say that? (laughs) You know, why why all the games? Why all the the codes? Why all the imagery and symbols and stuff like that? Um, To which I think we could give, there are probably a multitude of answers, but we could give at least one, that John is not simply interested in ancient history, He's not interested simply in Rome or simply in the imperial cult of Rome or simply in any particular king on the throne of Rome. His imagery is about more than ancient history and it's actually about more than just the future. A lot of people think it's about the future. People read this passage and they think it's describing some sort of future United Nations or some sort of future leader of an antichrist even though the word antichrist appears no nowhere in the book of Revelation anti- messiah Antichrist it appears nowhere in the book of Revelation people assume oh he must be talking about something far off in the future but John is uh, interested in something uh, in something more than just ancient history a history lesson more than just future, like maybe out there distant in the clouds somewhere. He is calling the church of the present to something right here and right now. And it's verse 18. Verse 18 says, this calls for what? Wisdom. Yeah. He's calling us To wisdom right here and right now. I think the reason he's giving us vision and code and numbers and stuff like that is John is interested in us recognizing a pattern more than a person is what he's interested in. Can you recognize when you see this sort of thing happening, that pattern, that's what you should be on the lookout for. We could say it this way. Um, Love and service. That's Jesus. That's Messiah. That's Christ. And domination and coercion, that is anti-Christ. That is anti-Messiah. That is No matter where you see it, no matter any time you see domination and coercion taking place, instead of love, trust, humility, service, that system, that person, they are living in a way that is beastly not fully human, not lamb-like. No one has to teach us to do this. This is actually the way that we live kind of by default. I remember one time when I was growing up, uh, my dad's a pastor, he was for me growing up. I remember going to VBS. Anyone go to VBS when they were little? Yeah, VBS kids. Um, And I remember I desperately wanted to sit next to, or at least sit at the table of Natalie Thomas. smitten by this girl and (laughs) I did not to get Put at her table, and uh, my, my tiny little world was collapsing in apocalyptic blood and fire, and I was just devastated, and my VBS teacher, I'd talked to her several times about, I want to sit next to her at the table of Natalie Thomas, and she wasn't responding to me, so at some point, I publicly said this to her in front of the class. I remember where we were, and um, she, of course, publicly responded to me and said, no, I assigned the seats, and you will be sitting where I assigned you Um, and so I had some beastly logic race through my mind Uh, suddenly it was crystal clarity I said well this teacher is the boss of me but who is the boss of my teacher oh it's my dad yeah and so I decided to threaten my VBS teacher uh, I said something like, you have to do what I say because my dad is the pastor. I decided to pull rank, to, to dominate, to try to coerce, to bully, to push, to control. And do you think I got to sit next to my beloved? I did not. I got to go sit in my dad's office. And yay for the VBS teacher. That's good. That was a good call. Uh, but can, can you see it? Can you see the pattern? It's something that we all we can slip into very easily, and it calls for wisdom. We can slip into it. Systems can slip into it. At that moment in my young life, I had slipped into something that fell tragically short of life as it was meant to be, of wholeness, of completeness. I was falling short of seven. I was living in a six, a six. Six. Oh. And so that's John's point, as he's wanting us, as individuals, us in whatever way we can, as a society, to recognize when we are falling short of completion, and when we are operating in beastly, subhuman kinds of ways. Whenever we see groups of people, or individuals, systems, governments, businesses, economies, anything that are operating in this sort of way, the Lamb is not. Behind it, that's the work of the dragon. Is what's actually—it's subhuman. It's—it's it's inhumane, and beyond being able to recognize like what was happening in John's day, like in ancient history, or what's going to happen one day in the future, John is inviting us to consider right now in the present day of whenever we are reading this, what kind of kingdom are we supporting? And what kind of lives are we living into? Are we joining up with the beastly kind of life? Are we joining up with heaven's life? Because heaven's life looks nothing like the beasts, it's the way of the lamb. The way of love. The way of the true kingdom. The one, like the son of man, it looks like the way of the cross. The way of turning the cheek. The way of healing those who don't deserve it. The way of being willing to die for enemies, especially when they don't deserve it. That's the gospel by the way. If you need to hear it, Jesus has done that for all of us. God in the flesh, Jesus of Nazareth comes bursting onto the scene and he's casting out demons and he's Healing darkness. He's not just telling us to turn the other cheek. He's doing it himself. He's taking it. And he's dying for those who hate him. He's saying, Father, forgive them. He's dying for his enemy. He's dying for us. He's dying for us. And he's saying, You don't have to stay in that beastly life. You can come into my life. And so, the, the invitation for all of us, especially as we're coming to the table this morning, is this we resist the beast, when we choose to carry a cross over inflicting a cross. That's how you know who you really think is Lord, is what you how you approach the cross. Am I willing to inflict a cross, to get control, to power up, or am I willing to carry a cross for the sake of of love. And by the time we get into Revelation 14 and 15, you see that the saints in Revelation are, they would rather die like Jesus than give allegiance to anything as cruel as the beast. Caesar and Rome and the beast say the world will finally be changed when we can just inflict enough crosses. If we crucify that whole town, inflict enough crosses, then. The world will change for the better. Then we can ensure Pax Romana peace when we just dominate, insist, control, bully, control, 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 and the lamb and his followers. That's us. We we have a different way of approaching things. We say the world will be changed when we carry crosses for each other especially for the people that we think don't deserve it. When we walk humbly, when we do good, when we love and serve, oh, and love, oh, and love, oh, and love some more. John's calling us all to wisdom. It's what he's doing here in chapter 13 of Revelation. He wants us to resist the beast, not in the past, not in the future, but like right now he wants us to resist the beast it's the um it's a challenge from the uh personal to the political like maybe uh some of us we need to resist the beast when it comes to like our relationships like maybe our spouse or significant other, we're so frustrated, and we think, you know what? If I just put the right barb in, or if I just rail against them a little harder, then if I, if I can, I can control this person. And what we're being invited to do is to resist the beast. How about serve them? Serve them, especially when they don't deserve it. Serve them. Maybe it's with parenting. I have two little girls, a four-year-old and a three-year-old, and um, sometimes you're just like, oh, can I coerce them? Can I make them bow to my will? I'm imagining when they get to be adults, I might feel the same sort of thing, and all of my instincts are actually a little beastly because the, the call of Jesus is to kindly guide them patiently with love, not to control them. Release the control and love them. We're invited to resist the beast with the way we vote. With the way we vote, it's hard to discern. I get how complicated it is. The question for me feels like boils down to, at bottom, do we believe that the world is going to be changed and made better with more strong beasts fighting it out, or with more gentle servants loving. The question for all of us as we come to this table this morning is, how are we participating in the systems of beastly violence and domination and coercion, and how can we release control and come to the one who gave himself up for us and say, you are making the world right. So I invite you to stand right now. If you're at home, you can prepare your elements as well. This is the climax of Christian worship and we come to a table in which uh, the Lamb did not dominate, did not control, did not get his way, but surrendered himself. (laughs) Surrendered himself for the sake of love. And that's what he invites all of us to do every single moment of our lives is to participate in his love. He gets his life inside of us. This is the great mystery of our faith. And so Jesus, we remember that on the night you were handed over to suffering and death, you took bread and you gave it to your disciples back then. And you're here with us this morning, looking us in the eye and offering us the bread. And you say, take, eat. This is my body and it's for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so, Jesus, we want your life of self-giving love to course through us and into the world because we want to be fully human, fully alive like you in a world where beasts are raging. And so come do that right now. You may receive the bread. Likewise, when supper was over, he took the cup. Having given thanks, he shared that cup with his disciples. He, he shares it with you this morning. And he says, drink from this, all of you. You, it's for you. This is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. It washes away every way that you have participated in it, every beastly instinct you have had, every way that you're seeking to control washes you clean so that my life can can course through you. And so Jesus, we heed your invitation and we gladly receive the cup of salvation. You may receive the cup. And so right now, across the room, wherever you are, maybe open your hands and just thank the Lamb, that great Lamb who was slain for the forgiveness of sinners and the good of the world. Thank Him right now, just with your voice inside of you. Thank Him for washing you clean, for making you whole and setting you loose on a world so that you can be part of, of bringing wholeness and healing to people, to systems, to this entire good creation. You can join in the work of restoration until that great day of restoration comes. Breathe out your thanks to Jesus right now. Thank you, Jesus. I invite you right now to join me in singing the doxology as we close our time of worship. In the house of God this morning, if you, uh, there's gonna be a prayer team up here if you need or want prayer or conversation or shoulder to lean on, come up here and get prayer. Um, As you go this morning, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord, turn his countenance towards you so that you can see his smile, that he has conquered every beast in the most counterintuitive way imaginable, and he's going to do it in you and through you. May you know that and trust that this week. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen and amen. Be blessed, brothers and sisters.